Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you are listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our guest today was Minnesota Education Commissioner Mary Catherine Ricker. Commissioner Ricker came on the show to talk about what she's been up to since starting her position, what Minnesota is doing to tackle the achievement gap, the legacy of charter schools in the state, and more. This is the last show of our spring season, but we'll be back this summer with shows every Tuesday in July at the Amsterdam Bar and Hall in downtown St. Paul. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I, you've probably been having several like uh, graduate. Uh, is it too early for graduations? They are just starting. Just starting. So, yeah. 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 Do you do you? Uh, this is I, we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but uh-huh. I am curious. Like, do you get invited to a lot of them to speak and to have to say things? I actually just did. In fact, I got invited to my hometown this Friday. I get to speak at my high school graduation. Thirty-one years after doing it myself. So. Oh, that. Yeah. I, do you know what you're going to say? Sort of. I've I mean, started taking notes. I took, you know, I took some notes just now. Oh, good. So I think that be good. Webster's Dictionary. That's yeah. where the, all the best yep. ones start. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the nice thing about being from Hibbing, Minnesota, is that one. Thank you. Yeah, you can kind of go for broke and just be the best in whatever field you're going into because no matter how good you are, you will never be the most famous person from Hibbing, Minnesota. <laughs> So good, good call. I feel like I can tell them that they can kind of do anything they want and, yeah. you know, be the best they can yeah. be. And, Just, you know, you know, don't become like a, a music blues right. legend. Like, try, try. that one path That's has right. been taken. Yeah. Don't wait for the Nobel Prize to yeah, come to you. Exactly. Right? And yeah. if you do, do get it, write your own speech. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. Inside joke. Uh, so, uh, so anyway, uh, okay, so we, there's a lot of issues to talk about with education in Minnesota. Absolutely. We just had like a legislative session that ended in education was a big part of that. And I wanted That's to right. ask a bunch of questions about that but i felt like actually i wanted to sort of set the table with just sort of Mm -hmm. you're the commissioner of education in minnesota and so we're going to talk all of minnesota of all of minnesota we're going to talk about everything from like per pupil funding and uh uh, budget and uh how we sort of assess kids graduation rules graduation rules sure what but what is your role in like these things? I guess is like what right. what is the commissioner's job? Like if we're saying, oh, you know, we need more funding for kids in schools, is yeah. that how do you sort of fit into making that happen? I yeah. guess. But well, part of my job is to actually just tell the story of where the funding would go. Okay. Um, because you're absolutely right. So this legislative session, we were a, a 543 million dollar part of this legislative session, and um, and a lot of folks want to know, like, well, wow, that's a lot of money. Where does it go? And um, and really, when you divide it around um, among 335 school districts in the state of Minnesota and 165 charter schools in the state of Minnesota, um, as well as um, 4,000 uh, voluntary pre-kindergarten spots, and like once you start dividing the money out, it becomes uh, the sort of money you use to invest in the ambitions of our students. I left out in your introduction that you have a math minor, yes. which is coming out very strong, <laughs> like very solid on the numbers. The math is strong uh, yeah, with yeah. me. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate oh, that. So, so you're helping mm-hmm. tell that story. I That's guess. Right. Okay, so now that budget has been passed, like, is your yeah. job in part... Ha- Figuring out how it's deployed, or is there a role in like uh, you know figuring out where resources go? I mean, what is the actual day to day? Well, there is a funding formula, and it is 
it's complicated, but I mean, we, we do got have, time. Yeah, good, exactly. And I've got the auditor here, so I can yeah. vote with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, we do have a finance division. They make sure that everybody, that the money follows the students. And so, um, of, the, of the basic funding formula, a portion of that follows students. And then we actually successfully froze the rising cost of special education services during this legislative session for the first time um, almost ever. What does that mean? So, you froze, like, so special yeah. education, they're not allowed to ask for more money for that, or is well, that the opposite? That, it's the fact that more money is going to be needed for special education because we, uh, we have a, a growing number of students um, who, are, who need special education services, and we also have um, the rising cost of special education. You know, um, when we meet the needs of students uh, with special needs, it tends to be very, um, it, it tends to need a lot of people, right? There could be paraprofessionals who are full-time aides for students, um, smaller, smaller groups for special education teachers, um, wanting to make sure there are counselors and social workers to also uh, make sure we're following everything in the individualized education plan for mm-hmm. the students. And so um, that costs money, and that the amount of money it takes is been, has been growing. And while the federal government agreed to meet 40% of the costs of special education uh, in 1965 when they, first, or, uh, when they first passed IDA, right now they're at about 7% of their commitment. Um, yeah, and so, but Minnesota also has a commitment as well. And so we need to make sure we're meeting our obligations. Is our commitment then 93%? At this point, uh, between the the state and the the local school district, we are trying to make up that difference, right? And so what the the state of Minnesota said this legislative session is that we would actually try to help school districts not have to pay more and that we'll, we'll essentially freeze the cost that they're spending right now and we'll give you extra money so that it doesn't go up for the district meeting the needs of our students, uh, but it will go up for the state of Minnesota. And so it's $91 million that we're going to be using to do that so we can better meet the needs of our students with special needs in our, in our okay. districts and our schools. Yeah. Another thing that uh, got, was one of the sort of headline pieces out of the budget deal that they did at the mm-hmm. legislature was 2% per pupil right. increase in funding. And so each... I, I would, you know, we don't, I, nobody, very few people explain sort of like what all that means. Like mm-hmm. it's each, each, each eye gets one, 2% more <laughs> vision uh, than it had before. So now it's That's 42, right. 40. It expands by 2%. Yeah. Uh, but the, what, what yeah. is that? And why does it matter that it was 2% versus, yeah. you know, 1%? Well, so um, what we have been hearing from school districts as they have been, you know, like writing checks for all the things they need to purchase to meet the needs of students is that the Do our schools write checks, by the way? I feel like we should get them credit cards, but uh, you well, know, it's just a suggestion. I'm Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, that's okay. There's a story behind that, but... Um, no, so so they, they have said that inflation is hovering right around 2% right, right now. So in order to really just invest in students at the rate they're investing now, they, they needed that increase. And if we hadn't frozen the cost of special education, we would have actually seen that 2% actually have to go into um, special services, special education, and so it wouldn't have been a true 2%. Um, and, and so what we're seeing is that, that 2% uh, with the – freeze 
in special education means that 2% is actually going to mean 2%, and our school districts will actually feel a real increase in, in their bottom line. So their, like, 2% isn't going to just get eaten up by inflation or, or, or like, the increase in funding is in, the idea. Uh, yep, and the increase in the cost of special education. And the increase exactly. in special So, okay, so there's more money, uh, it seems like, going into schools is sort of the— That's right. —the— bottom yep. line of those two big pieces. I'm, yeah. What does that mean, right? Like, what does that yeah. actually mean on the ground for, for Absolutely. Kids? Well, and so what's exciting about it is, you know, I had the chance this winter and spring to get into a lot of schools and see what they're doing. And, and really, so when I say that that schools are actually, and our school leaders are investing in the ambitions of our students, that is exactly what they're trying to do. They are more creative than ever. And so our funding formula is the most flexible money our districts have to meet the needs of their students. And so they can use it to uh, lower class sizes. They can use it to invest in, in reading curriculum. They can use it to introduce restorative practices at their middle school, for example. Or they can use it to invest in high school pathway programs that allow students to take current enrollment classes that allow students to earn industry credentials while they're earning their high school diploma at the same time. Um, And so we have some students who have these pathways for them now where they are earning their high school diploma, they are earning industry credentials in something like uh, perhaps medicine, perhaps welding, perhaps another craft, and they're earning uh, college credits at the same time. And so those are some of the things our schools are doing with the, the money the state provides when they get it. So they're, they're getting more of this money, and, and they have a lot of flexibility in what they can do. With that funding, with absolutely. With that funding, with what mm-hmm. they can do with it. So then I guess, you know, the flip side of that coin is like, well, then how do you see if they're doing something good with it or not. Well, like, Mm -hmm. how do you start to measure what was actually working or not? Because, oh, they they had a pathway for students to all become improvisers. You would be like, okay, well, not that much flexibility. (laughs) Dial it back. Yeah. No. Um, Actually, given the way our schools are really interested in reinvesting in the arts, because uh, in the last couple decades, uh, some things happened in that while our districts had like had these austerity measures put on them and they were not getting the investments they actually needed to keep up, they were cutting programs. Um, I called it sort of like um, like financial hypothermia and that like your body loves your fingers and your toes right up until it finds out you're dying, right? And then it decides that to keep your core body warm, it's not going to How? use your fingers and your toes anymore. It's like the darkest metaphor I can yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the world of education finance. Yeah. <laughs> Right? And so as our schools were realizing they did not have the money to pay for all the ambitions that their students had, they started cutting programs like career and technical education. They started cutting art and music and physical education. And they started cutting world language programs. They started cutting librarians. And now as our schools are starting to get... um, that money back, they want to reinvest in that. So you say um, improvisation as a joke, but there are schools out there desperately interested in reinvesting in their theater programs so that students have one more avenue to explore before they graduate. So I'm actually really looking forward to something like that. I'll invite you the first time I get invited okay. to an improvisation class at a high school. Oh, I would love yes. that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, part of that question, though, was that... Uh, so we haven't talked... To, uh, one of the big things that always comes up in education conversations we had is like that we have 
we have mixed outcomes in Minnesota, to say the least. That's right. right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in some ways, we do amazingly in education, and then we also mm-hmm. have these huge gaps. That's uh, right. Where it's like uh, students of color perform, uh, graduated much lower rates. Uh, have, That's right. Uh, a lot of uh, sort of room between them and like where a lot of our white students are doing. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of where I was trying to get to with like, okay, so we increase the per pupil funding or that's we right. make more money available. And then wh- what's the mechanism to, or how do we start thinking about like, okay, and we really need to make sure that we're doing that, that we're closing that gap, that we're pulling those students along. Exactly. And one of the things I have really tried to do as I look at the sort of indicators we as a state have chosen um, and that the federal government has chosen for us to, to measure student progress, um, there are success stories in the state of Minnesota. And so I really feel like I can use my attention to focus on those success stories and figure out what is it they're doing. So, for example, we just released graduation rates last month Mm -hmm. for the last year. And uh, we saw that our graduation rates went up again, which is really exciting. But to your point, those gaps persist. Now, our students of color and our indigenous students, their graduation rates are increasing faster. So that gap is closing, but not fast enough. And so, for example, right now, um, our Native American students in the state of Minnesota have the lowest graduation rate of all of our student groups. Um, But there are school districts making a difference. Deer River, Minnesota, which has a significant Native population, 70% of their students graduate, which is almost double the the state average. Uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota, which also has a significant population of Native students, their graduation rate is 93% for Native students. So they're doing something right. So I feel like it's, it's my responsibility to find out what their stories are, what is it you're doing, and now I go to those districts where they are struggling with those numbers, and I, and I introduce them, and I say, you learn from Grand Rapids. And, and meanwhile, West St. Paul, well, you have this graduation rate for uh, Latino and Hispanic students that is much higher than the state average. I want to learn what you're doing, and I want to introduce you to, to districts that are struggling. And I feel like it's my responsibility to learn where... We, we are learning how to do it right and then share those stories across the rest of the state of Minnesota. I, uh, yes, that's, yeah. that's great. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, well, I, it seems like a fair follow-up question is, what are they mm-hmm. doing right? Uh, and right. then what is, it, what is it that we need to maybe make broader? Then? Yeah, well, let me give you Deer River's example okay. because I actually think Deer River's example is also a, a great parallel example for um, arguing for ethnic studies. Um, and if you haven't heard of that before, I can share what that is. But what, what Deer River decided to do uh, a while ago is they have um, their American Indian education program, rather than treat it like a pullout program where just Native students would be asked to like go to a room and come out of their English class and do that, they actually incorporated um, their American Indian education into their entire school day, K through 12. Mm. So their, their Indian education programming at uh, their elementary school, for example, is one more enrichment activity that all the students do. So they have a rotation of three enrichments. They have physical education, they have American Indian education, and they have a music class. And all the students in Deer River's elementary school go through that rotation. And then at the high school, they have the same thing where there are elective classes. There are elective classes based on Native studies, uh, very specific to ricing, for example, or um, Native art, for example. And so students are learning the principles of the different Minnesota's academic standards through uh, authentic, you know, through authentic studies. And in this case, again, kind of parallel to the, the move to create more ethnic studies opportunities for all of our students. So <clears throat> this is one of the things it seems like you're hoping 
There's mm-hmm. slightly more money on the table. Uh, right. And so schools, we want you to start investing more in this and like making this happen more. That's right. This is one story I can share again when we have school leaders who really want to invest in the ambitions of their students uh, that that I point out these examples of schools that have figured out how exactly to invest in the ambitions of their students. And what we are seeing in Deer River, what they're telling me, quite frankly, is that attendance has gone up, truancy has gone down, um, all, like, the relationship of, like, Native students and non-Native students has improved in, in the community as well. Um, so, like, all the metrics are going all the right ways. And we want to do more of that. So... So why doesn't everybody do that? Is it just money? I think it's, well, I think it's a combination of things, right? Um, you, you need to reflect on your practice, right? And that's at a teacher, at a teacher, we need to reflect individually on our practice in our classrooms. School leaders need to reflect on their practice in their buildings. District leaders need to reflect on their practice. So, and the first thing you do when you reflect is, you know, figure out what is going wrong and what is going right. Um, a lot of, a lot of folks will talk about data-driven decision-making, um, and, and if you keep it at that data level, you might be making decisions that you think are really good for kids, but then at the end of the day, you realize you sort of missed the mark. But when you start looking at data and realize that data is just your students telling you their stories. So for example, when we look at our graduation rates, and one of the things we see in the state of Minnesota is that, so our four-year graduation rate is the one that we, um, I, that, that we announced in, in April. But along with that was a five-year graduation rate and a six-year graduation rate. And so one of the things we're learning in the data is students are telling us that when we tell them that we are not going to give up on them, they don't give up on themselves. And even if it takes them five years to graduate or six years to graduate, they will do it. But if we haven't told them the message or like, so for example, the class of 18, which was the highest graduation rate ever at 83.3%, I believe, um, 3,000 students in the class of 18 still dropped out in the mm-hmm. state of Minnesota, right? So first, 3,000 students is not an insurmountable number, yeah. right? Like we can, like, what is it those 3,000 students are telling us that dropping out was their best, worst choice, right? And what was it that we were telling them that like didn't get the message of the 3,000 students who decided to stay at it and are now in their fifth year working toward graduation, right? So some of the kids got the message that in Minnesota, we don't give up on you. But, then, but some kids got a message that dropping out was okay. So that's the sort of data that tells me as commissioner that those students are telling me their stories and I've got to listen to it and I've got to figure it out. So when a school district is also looking at sobering statistics, right, graduation gaps, other gaps, um, you know, maybe rising in one area and lowering in another. Rather than just look at it as data and numbers, they're not numbers. They're students. And figure out what story those students are telling you. And, 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 that's, and I think when you talk to the leaders in Deer River, it's one of the things they did. They started looking at their data and saying, these, this data, these are students, and here's the story they're telling us. Uh, last question, I promise I'll ask about no, uh, no. in this. And I should say, in the second half of the show, we open up for you all to ask questions. Uh, so hopefully you're thinking about those. But one thing I've always wondered about the, the achievement gap in mm-hmm. Minnesota is uh, it, it really became sort of a big focal point or a thing that we started talking about, I feel like, maybe 10, 15 years ago mm-hmm. in Minnesota. It became sort of like everyone was focused on it. Is that just because we started fair. measuring things differently and, or we weren't looking for mm-hmm. that problem 
before, or was it a new problem? One of the things that No Child Left Behind did, which was the uh, the, the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act before <laughs> ESSA. We all remember it as right, the elementary know, exactly. and whatever you said yeah. as. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that asked us to do or told us to do, quite frankly, was disaggregate our data for the first time. Mm. Um, and so it was the first time that... Um, a lot of people, not just perhaps school leaders or perhaps not just an individual teacher looking at her own data. Um, it was the first time we looked at disaggregated data um, for an entire school district, for example, or for an entire state um, in a public way. Again, there are probably people who always had access to that sort of information, but this was the first time where it really started showing up in the newspapers, for example. And, 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 and I, I remember very, very vividly as a classroom teacher um, when I would look at the, the, my own data that would come back and I would look at it and, and, and just, and again, being vexed with what happened here. I was like, I, they had the same teacher with the same lesson and, you know, I was thoughtful about my differentiation and, you know, I, I called home on, you know, this student a lot and, you know, and I, and I checked in with this student, what happened? And, and I think it was the first time that, that, that you know, that, that the data was sort of staring back at us publicly um, and, and telling us that we needed to be more reflective in our work. Uh, so last question, I'll, yeah. and, and you alluded to this. You mm-hmm. were a classroom teacher. Yes. A lot has been made of the fact that you're a classroom teacher. And our yeah. governor is, was a classroom teacher. Yes. What difference does that make? I, and I ask yeah. that totally sincerely. Like, I mean, now that you're in the job, like, mm-hmm. what does that inform you? What do you bring to that uh, position now, having been there? Well, so the very first thing it brings, you know, so it, I am still a properly licensed English language arts teacher. So if you have... So um, the second half of this show and, is going bad. We can just, like, dive into right. Macbeth. I think there's, and, a, like, there's a fellow Oxford comma fan, I think, in the... In the I am, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things it does is, is my, my filter for what would this look like in a classroom is still pretty strong. And so as we're talking about uh, maybe a grant opportunity coming up, or we're talking about policy at the state capitol, or we're talking about what sort of, like your very first question, right? What sort of difference could money like this really make? Um, and I think back to, to you know, my, my own experience as a classroom teacher, thinking like, well, here's the difference it would make. Or I think, you know, when I think of a policy, um, you know, for example, one of the really... Um, one of the policies being talked about a lot right now, thanks to Valerie Castile, Philando Castile's mom, mm. um, is this idea of preventing someone from celebrating uh, their gra- in a graduation ceremony if they yeah. have, still have school lunch debt, right? So I can think back as a classroom teacher and, again, use that filter to say, why in the world would I want a debt to keep someone from being recognized for their academic honor, right? Like, that makes no sense. Like, I do not want to be the person who would have to tell a student, like, oh, by the way great job busting your tail getting this grade that gets you to graduate but you can't walk across the stage with everyone else they're going to mail you your diploma right like that just seems you know which is a thing that we had been doing unfortunately like for students who had like an outstanding lunchroom debt that's right there were i mean there were policies some districts still had on the books now from what i understand some of them had even forgotten they had that policy because they hadn't been following it for years, which is great. Um, but it so does many policies help. we wish you could forget. It's just like <laughs> if only. Yeah. Um, I did, well. It was the first time I realized I'm like you don't have to follow policies. <laughs> I don't know if that's the lesson. I, but, uh, I agree with you. I agree with you. What other policies are you not following yeah. that you have? 
Um, and so I do feel like that lens as a classroom teacher to say, what sort of difference does this make on teaching and learning? And the, and the conversation I have at the department every day is distilling it down to that teaching and learning environment, right? What is going to feed that teaching and learning environment? And what are some barriers to getting to the healthiest teaching and learning environment we have? And I really think that my background is, is one of the things that helps incubate that thinking. On that very positive, optimistic note, can we do a big <laughs> round of applause? Mary Catherine Ricker. All right. So uh, if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. I will come towards you in a non-threatening manner, and I will give you a sticker in exchange for an actual question. All right. Uh, so uh, hello. So prompt. Oh, and standing up. Here we go. Thank Fantastic. You. Yes, hello. Hi. Uh, I'm here from Ohio on my honeymoon, actually. Congratulations. Wow. We came here because of this, by the way, so no pressure. Yeah. Right. yeah. This is the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> yeah. uh, and our education department is trying to incorporate behavioral health into their education uh, initiatives, in part to try to increase the graduation rates. And so I was just curious, what is Minnesota doing to be able to support student mental health and address mm -hmm. uh, drug issues in the schools in order to uh, help all those issues that you brought up earlier? Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, so first, I will put stickers. in a plug for the social-emotional learning that's happening in Cleveland, Ohio, um, because it's, it's incredible. And, um, but then I will say that in this last legislative session, one of the things we did um, in the spirit of one of the things our lieutenant governor says is that kids don't come in pieces, right? So, so neither should our budget. Our budget should look like we're addressing as many of our students' needs as possible. And so one of the things we did, not in the education bill, but in our human services bill is we actually increased the funding for school-based mental health providers so that our schools would have additional funds to be able to have mental health professionals in our schools to meet the needs of our students. Um, one of the other things we did is we... Um, we also are providing uh, more school safety money, and that school safety money can actually be used for ad adding things like social and emotional learning, restorative practices, um, other conflict resolution um, programs, other relationship building programs. Um, and, and then the, the other thing I would say, too, is that we have a lot of school districts in Minnesota who understand that having a counselor-to-student ratio that, is, um, that helps us meet the needs of students um, is something to aspire to. And so I know a lot, not only in the state of Minnesota, are we trying to address our either worst or second in the worst in the nation counselor-to-student ratio, um, but we are, we are trying to make sure that mental health professionals, like social workers as well, um, psychologists, are, um, you know, that we increase the numbers in our school buildings. Wait, I didn't know that. So we have the worst and or second worst? <laughs> Student Council to counselor school ratio. Counselor to student ratio. That's exactly. That is surprising. Like I just would think. It's embarrassing, I mean, is the word I use. Yeah, I'm it's like, embarrassing. We're working on it. We're working on it. I yeah. Promise. Huh. Yeah. Okay. So there was a hand yeah. up in the gallery here. I'm gonna. Hand, here you go. There you. Oh, and yeah, a sticker. Yeah. A sticker, yeah. Don't deprive me of my sticker. Hi, um, Hi. I'm Kathy. It is not our honeymoon, but this is, this is a great way to spend a honeymoon. Right. Um, yeah. um, so my question is specifically about teachers. Yes. You know, you talk about the teaching learning experience. I think that last skit was a great skit that really inspired this question also. It was but, very um, cathartic. Why did it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so everything that we've been talking about has been very student-centered, which is really mm -hmm. important. But also I'm curious about the thinking around quality 
incentives for teachers and the mm -hmm. benefits to teachers because in order for us to actually meet the ambitions of our students, we have to have teachers that are valued and right and that is that are supported mm, and so right. what either in the budget or in your vision yeah. um, is to really support teachers so that they can support students yeah absolutely let me talk to let me talk about two different areas where i really want to promote um, our work in the state of Minnesota. So one of the things we have started to do in the state of Minnesota, which is great, is we've actually started to pay attention to uh, the recruitment pipeline and diversifying that pipeline into teaching, right? So we are, doing that, we, are, we are doing that deliberately now, which is great. We are also having a robust discussion about what it takes to be a teacher, right? What sort of training, what sort of background, what should you do? Where we haven't gone with that conversation yet is the sort of career we are welcoming people into. And I think we're ready for that discussion, right? So let's, let's keep this robust discussion on diversifying the teacher pipeline. Let's, let's keep the discussion on the sort of training it takes to be a teacher. And we, we have the capacity to also discuss about the sort of career we should be welcoming teachers into. It's 19 years into the 21st century. We should not be welcoming people into a 20th century uh, you know, sort of work day, work expectations, et cetera. I, I think when we have that discussion about what a career in teaching looks like, that will actually improve the pipeline and it'll actually inform the, what we're doing to train teachers to be ready for that career in teaching. So that's one thing. One specific area in that career in teaching I really want to improve is the number of National Board Certified Teachers we have in the state of Minnesota. So the National Board Certification process is actually similar to, it was actually designed, inspired by the board board certification process for doctors as well. Now, they have about a 100-year head start on the professionalization they've done um, and among their work, but that's okay. We can figure it out because we're teachers. Um, so right now, 89.9% of doctors in the state of Minnesota are voluntarily board certified in their field. Right now, we have just over 500 of our 55,000 teachers who are board certified in our field, uh, including me. So I really want to make sure that our, like, first, our teachers know what board certification is. They know what it takes to get it. They know where it falls in the continuum of their profession. And then our school communities know what it is. And then, of course, our communities know what it is so, um, so that we can start seeing some of the same board certification numbers in teaching that we see in, that we see in medicine. I don't, I don't know what a national certification means in comparison to... I, you have to be certified within Minnesota, We have right? to be licensed. Licensed, yes. excuse yep. me. Licensed, not certified. Exactly. So, so help me... What is the difference? Like, mm -hmm. help me parse that out. Right. So your license in the state of Minnesota says that you've met the requirements to uh, earn a teaching license in the state of Minnesota. It essentially means that you can now legally work as a teacher. Um, it means that there is the background that the state required that you had, uh, that you completed that. Uh, it means that you have uh, passed whatever tests they've asked you to take uh, to prove that you're ready to be a licensed teacher. Uh, board certification is actually uh, an evidence of your accomplished practice. So you can't start pursuing board certification until you, uh, until you have a teaching position um, and you've been practicing as a classroom teacher already. And, um, and so then board certification, these are national standards that show your ability to be a reflective practitioner, um, your, your ability to uh, learn from the, the student work that is in front of you, um, your ability to uh, invest in your profession while improving the, while better meeting the needs of your students at the same time. It just, board certification means that you're an accomplished practitioner. And uh, that's good. And, and, uh, and then right. what? Or is, mm -hmm. is there, is it tied to, oh, and then you 
you have advancement opportunities or you have uh, f- uh, pay opportunities. What, what is it, it that we sort yeah. of the carrot so, of that? So it depends. Um, one, it depends on what your union is negotiated in your local contract, perhaps. Um, it depends on what you've decided to pursue next. Um, it is not uncommon for board-certified teachers to be uh, invited into other leadership opportunities or to manufacture your own leadership opportunities, for that matter. Um, and this will be part of that discussion we have about a continuum uh, career in teaching, uh, the sort of leadership opportunities you should be able to have without having to leave your classroom uh, to do them. Okay. So there's a Hello, I'm Julie. I'm from Nebraska. I'm here with my wife That's on vacation because this is what welcome. Yeah. This. this is so great. This is what lesbians do on vacation. Yeah. <laughs> so. I have a question. You talked a lot about special education mm-hmm. and how that's a big priority. And um, I'm from Nebraska where we have, do not have charter schools. And we've been kind of staunch advocates against charter schools. So I'm curious about how your state is approaching that additional funding for charter school or for special education mm-hmm. and how it d- is differentiated between charter schools and public schools and, and how that kind of works here. Do we still have a lot of time, Tane? (laughs) I had somebody who wanted us to do this whole show about charter schools, so take (laughs) as much time as you like. Yeah. (laughs) Part two. Um, Yeah, so actually, uh, charter schools who meet the needs of students with special needs can actually, actually, any district who is meeting the needs of any student with special needs can build back the home district of that student. So we also have something in Minnesota called open enrollment. So for example, if I live in Roseville but want to send my child with special needs to St. Paul, St. Paul Public Schools can charge Roseville's school district for the special services of that student. Uh, likewise, a charter school can do the same thing. So if a charter school, um, you know, if a, a student with special needs enrolls in a charter school, uh, the charter school pays for uh, the special services that student gets. They bill back their home district so that the charter school actually doesn't have to pay for the special, or they pay, they essentially pay 90 cents on, um, they pay 10 cents on the dollar for the special needs services that they're purchasing for that student. Um, and so there is, um, there, there is a question right now of the bill back uh, that it's called and that um, that 90% that gets billed back to the home district right now Um, and so it is there is consensus that is one of the things we need to tackle next which if you're sticking around we are going to start a school finance task force and that is probably going to be one of the subjects of the school finance task force so uh, so what is the argument against the charter schools being able to do that or the is uh, I'm sorry what was that messed up yeah Oh, that they can bill back? Yeah. Yeah, well, it happens in an open enrollment situation as well. And so, you know, we've had open enrollment, I think, since the 80s, 86, 87. Um, And so if you, you know, open enroll your child to a neighboring district, that neighboring district can then charge your home district for the special needs services as well. I mean, this is one of the arguments against charter schools is that there's a lot of these financing mechanisms that are... People who are critics of charter schools would say are set up in a way to let the charter schools basically bleed out to, Mm -hmm. just to use one of your very dark metaphors, uh, bleed out uh, our public schools. You don't bleed out with hypothermia, Um, but, you know, (laughs) but, exactly, but, (laughs) but, but I'm willing to go with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, okay, let me let me ask the very just mm-hmm. existential question about charter schools. Minnesota is actually, I believe, the first state with charter mm-hmm. schools. We are, 25 yep, years we've had them. One yep. of the, the argument for charter schools early on was mm-hmm. they're going to be these uh, experiment uh, stations. They're going to be laboratories where we try different things, and that will inform sort of our larger practice of that. That's right. 25 years on, yep. do you feel like we are seeing the fruits of that? That, that it's been a good experiment and that we're getting what we mm-hmm. need out of charter schools for that experiment to keep going. You know, I think one of the interesting things, if you go back to when, uh, when charter, schools were, charter schools were first born in Minnesota, um, where you saw other promising practices actually were in, um, in larger districts where they were working, like where they already had introduced magnet schools, for example, or um, right around the same time, uh, St. Paul Public Schools, for example, introduced an immersion school for the first time. Um, and so you saw this sort of, you saw this interest in incubating um, practices. And so the the charter school law became one way of doing that. Um, What happened is when the charter school law got adopted, then um, essentially the the incubation in districts um, sort of, you know, like, I don't know that it stagnated, but it didn't, you know, it, 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 it didn't sort of feed itself in the way it had been um, in, the, in the same way district schools had been incubating sort of magnet schools or immersion schools and other things. Um, what you are seeing now is, again, you are seeing an appetite for district schools to really, um, really compartmentalize sort of some of the interests in a whole school community. Um, I know when I was president of the St. Paul Federation of Teachers, we actually negotiated language in our contract to redesign schools ourselves because we thought, why would we want that innovation and those innovative ideas to leave the district? Yeah. Like, why not have an opportunity? If you have, if you have educators and school leaders who want to incubate a promising educational practice, why not make the contract the the way the the vehicle, the mechanism they can do to do that right within a school district? Don't change it. You know, you're not changing out students. You're not changing out a location. You're actually listening more closely to the school community and co-creating what that atmosphere should look like. So I think that's sort of what we have evolved to. Um, and, and they're in parallel tracks. And I think that like the next discussion needs to become what are we like, where is the real innovation happening and how do we truly incubate that? So, yes. Was <laughs> <laughs> oh, it just yes or no? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Can you repeat the question? All right. No, this kidding. is this is the last question uh, we have. Uh, here you go. Thanks. Hi, my name is Sophia. I'm a student, so I guess I always like to play devil's advocate. Fabulous. So, <laughs> yeah, I was just wondering, um, basically, sorry for like the crude language, but yeah. are you, do you think that you're throwing money at maybe a cultural problem? Like, for example, like our community is really, it, we really value education versus mm-hmm. an inner city community that maybe there are a lot of disadvantaged students there who have to think about, I have work right after school until 12 o'clock a.m. And, mm-hmm. and I don't have like food for, or money for food and you think things like that. So I was just like, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, so the first thing I will say is that in 13 years of teaching middle school, I never once met a, t- a student 
or a parent who didn't care desperately about their child. Um, and so I would say that the hopes and dreams of our students in uh, St. Paul or Minneapolis are just as ambitious as the hopes and dreams of students everywhere else. And so there are times, and one of the reasons that we are looking for, we were looking for an equitable budget, um, and Governor Walsh and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan really proposed that the sort of budget that recognize that kids don't come in pieces that you know that it's really difficult to to learn as a hungry student um one of the reasons we wanted a budget that addressed all of those things is we wanted to remove remove as many barriers as possible um so not only did we have the school-based mental health grants for example but our our housing finance um department actually introduced a program or in increase the funding for a program called Homework Starts with Home that prioritizes families with school-aged children who are experiencing housing instability because that is one of the things that goes into um, missing school or having to transfer schools and, and other things that end up creating barriers for students. And so, um, and so sometimes those things do take money. It's true. But then when we see the payoff, so for example, the four-year-old program that we just saved, so we just saved 4000 four-year-old voluntary pre-K spots in 80 communities across the state of Minnesota. And um, that four-year-old program has been shown to show results well into third grade. And so paying money up front, right, putting money into that up front is actually paying off in fewer students who uh, then need remediation, um, students who don't maybe need as many special services. And so we are seeing that, um, that money is an investment. And that's, where, that's why I want to make those as smart as possible. So uh, thanks for asking. Yeah. I, I, maybe a, a different version of that question uh, that I do hear from folks in education who do believe, yes, we want to invest mm-hmm. in, make, uh, uh, all. we want to give all of our children the chance to succeed and whatnot. That's I think right. one of the challenges they would say is we're asking schools to do a lot yeah. more than we used to, right? right? Like that we're, we're asking them to not just sort of educate our children, but also just like be wraparound services mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. And we're not Absolutely. maybe equipped to do that. Or if we are going to do that, then we really need to like radically rethink mm-hmm. like what school is. And I'm curious, like yeah. if you hear that from folks who are like, mm-hmm. I get it. Like we want to do this, but like you're asking us to like completely reform. And That's I'm right. trying to like Get, I'm trying to make sure that kids know, like, uh, when the U.S. Dakota War happened and how Same. shitty it was. Uh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a standard. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I I didn't hear about it all the time. I actually lived it. Yeah. Right. As a as a classroom teacher, who also, you know, like. Um, when I when I first became union president and I was I was fighting for additional supports for um, to expand our pre-K program, for example, to increase the number of counselors and social workers, for example, to reintroduce librarians in our libraries, uh, for example, and make sure that every school had a school nurse. Um, at first, when I would come to tables and I would talk about these things, I would get a finger wagged at me and they'd just be like, well, this is just, you know, you're just giving us excuses. And I would have to tell person after person after person, these are not the things that keep teachers from teaching, these are the things that keep teachers up at night. And so this is like, this is the lived experience. You're absolutely right. That I not only had as a teacher, I had as a representative of teachers. And now as education commissioner, I am hearing school leaders so desperate to address these things so that our students can come to learn that we are absolutely responsible for the academic 
uh, needs of our students. You bet 100%. And we want to make sure that the social and emotional needs of our students are met as well, 100%. And we want to make sure the safety needs of our students, that school is a welcoming place for all of them, period, full stop, 100%. Those three things can be done. And it is not social and emotional learning at the expense of academics. Absolutely not. And it is not a safe and welcoming environment at the expense of social and emotional learning. Those things are interlinked. So to make sure that we're talking and we are moving all three things forward at the same time, it might take some talent, and it's probably going to take all of us in the state of Minnesota, but it absolutely has to be done because our kids don't come in pieces, as our lieutenant governor says. On that, uh, yeah, keep that round of applause going. Our guest, Education Commissioner Thank Mary you. Catherine Ricker. Big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.